Hello and a very warm welcome to the first podcast for The Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology, a brand new journal from the stable of Lancet journals. Delighted to be with you and delighted to be with the editor of the journal, Rob Briley. Just before we speak to Rob, in this first podcast we're going to have a detailed interview about a paper in the first issue of The Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology. More on that in a moment. But Rob, welcome. Why don't you just take a couple of minutes to tell us about your lovely new journal? Thank you, Richard. The Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology is a new clinically focused journal from the Lancet Group, which aims to publish practice changing and illuminating clinical research, expert reviews, and provocative comments and opinion in any area related to gastroenterology and hepatology. We also aim to provide an independent voice for the gastroenterology and hepatology communities. In addition, the journal will continue the strong Lancet tradition of advocacy and health policy. If you are interested in further information, I urge you to visit our website at thelancet.com forward slash gastrohep to browse our latest content and to register for free updates when new articles are published. We're now going to hear from Professor Jürgen Riem, Director of the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, who will be discussing a paper in the first issue of the journal on the evidence base for reducing ethanol content in beverages to reduce the harmful use of alcohol. Professor Rehm, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology. We're here to discuss your review paper, which is exploring evidence of mechanisms underlying encouraging populations to consume less alcohol in their beverages. What are the main mechanisms that we are looking at? I think there are three mechanisms at play, and one will hopefully become the main mechanism. The first mechanism is that drinkers people who already choose to drink alcohol in their lives will be switching to a similar beverage with decreased alcohol concentration. An example for that, somebody is drinking customarily beer, and instead of drinking beer of 5.5%, he would drink or she would drink beer of 4.5%. The second mechanism would be that uh, alcohol-free or very low alcohol beverages will be offered on the market and drinkers may be switching to those part of the time. Let's say, again, I do it with beer, there will be some alcohol-free beer or very low alcohol beer, like half a percent or one percent on the market. And people who would customarily drink beer would say, okay, every Wednesday, instead of my beers, I'm having the alcohol-free variant for whatever reason. A third mechanism, which is also important to consider, which is not necessarily leading to reduction, would be that if low-alcohol strength beverages are offered new in a market, some people who are currently abstainer would say, oh, this is interesting. I never liked alcohol. I always thought it makes me too tipsy or I have too many problems with control. But now that we have this very low alcohol concentration alternative, I may start drinking. And that would be something which for sure would not increase uh, decrease the harmful use of alcohol in the world. And of those mechanisms you've just outlined, which one do you think is the most promising, has the most potential? Well, if you look into the experimental and the other literature, I think the most potential is in switching current drinks to lower alcoholic beverage strength drinks. 
And the experimental evidence is about people who had been given lower beverage alcohol in certain situations in an experimental setting. And after that, they had much lower blood alcohol concentration, but felt the same content about their evening, about the party. So those would be some of the indications why we believe this is the most promising mechanism. Moving on from that, uh, I have a curious question, so, uh, but it's re- relevant obviously to your, your review because we're looking at population health here, public health. Is there any mileage in suggesting that people who don't drink might benefit population health from drinking? This is only a theoretical benefit. We don't believe that overall the benefit is real. What you would have to do is you would have to very much take alcohol just like a medication, like two spoons every evening of a spirit, for example. And while this may be theoretically be associated with a slight decrease in risk in cardiovascular and a slight increase in uh, breast cancer, this is highly unlikely that many people would do that. If anybody starts drinking for health reasons, there are risks that this person may become addicted to alcohol in the longer run. There are other risks. There are the risks for breast cancer, which for females start with one drink per day. And so overall, there are much better ways to increase your health and decrease your disability than by starting alcohol. This is the reason why all major medical associations and guidelines would clearly suggest that starting to drink alcohol for health reasons is not a good idea. Thank you very much for clarifying that uh, that question. In terms of evidence, uh, evidence-based, laboratory evidence, and this concerns people obviously who enjoy consumption of alcohol, thinking particularly of beers of a particular strength. Is there any, any uh, laboratory evidence that in the double-blind laboratory situation that drinkers are unable to distinguish between different strength beers? Because that's very relevant, isn't it, to this discussion, this perception of alcohol? Absolutely. I mean, basically, there's a lot of evidence. We have more than 10 uh, laboratory experiments where different versions of alcohol with different strength has been given. This is true not only for beer, by the way. We did experimentation uh, with the German body of control for all alimentation and could find that Germans could not distinguish between 30 and 40% proof alcohol, no matter what kind of drinkers they were. And this was even true for people who had special education for food tasting. But back to beer. Most of the experiments, in fact, all of the experiments showed that people cannot distinguish between something, let's say, four and a half and five and a half percent of the same beer. Most people couldn't even distinguish between a normal beer and a beer of lower than two percent. So there is very good evidence that from a consumer's point of view, alcohol is not discernible. The effects within a short time cannot be distinguished from non-alcoholic beverages. 
this short time could even be three, four hours. As I said before, there had been an experiment of parties of students, normal parties, and unknown to the student, their party had been randomized, i.e. by chance given a normal beers or beers with reduced alcohol content. At the end of the party, which usually for five hours, the blood alcohol level of both kinds of party were checked, and it was very clear that the party with a lower concentration of alcohol in beer had lower blood alcohol concentrations as a group. So in this party, it was not that they suddenly consumed more beers because it was lower strength. They did not know it was lower strength, and they consumed just the same amount of beer, resulting in a lower blood alcohol level. Now you may say, oh, well, that may be true, but maybe they were less content with the party. They had a strange feeling about it, and all of those questions were asked. And it turned out that the other parameters of the party, you know, did they like it, Were they? Uh, how did they feel themselves, did they feel intoxicated to a certain point, etc. All of those other uh, parameters were exactly the same. I mean, they were not exactly the same, but they were not significantly different between the parties where alcohol was given at full strength and alcohol was given at reduced strength. So overall, this could be a very good advertisement, for example, to show people that they may have the same fun and the same effects overall, even if they drink less. We must turn to taxation, of course, because this always comes up when we're looking at uh, public policy um, to do with um, population alcohol consumption. What's the view about the effect of taxation on reducing alcohol-related harm? An obvious example is, isn't it, Northern Territories in Australia, where they've actually had an incremental tax, haven't they, that relates to the amount of alcohol that, that, that is available to be used and the effect that can have on alcohol-related behaviour. Can you comment on that? Absolutely. I mean, basically, the mechanism mechanisms which I explained can be achieved by a variety of different measures or interventions. It could be that uh, alcohol industry is reducing their alcoholic strength, but it could also be that uh, the regulatory agencies and governments force alcohol industry to reduce their overall alcoholic strength. The problem in the Northern Territories of Australia at the time was that they had a very high level of injuries traffic injuries and other injuries, and alcohol was clearly involved in many of that. So they needed a way to reduce the consumption and to reduce the blood alcohol concentration in that territory. So what they did at the time was they did a number of linked mechanisms to reduce. And the most important mechanism was that they put up a levy to any alcoholic beverages which were above 3% alcohol, and that concerned mainly beer. And after evaluating the effects of their interventions, it became very clear that not only there was much less alcohol being consumed, but you could see the effects very clearly in the rates of 
injuries, for example, motor vehicle injuries in that region. Let me say that we believe that the taxation was the most important mechanism, but there was also some public uh, information campaigns, education campaigns, etc. So we cannot be 100% sure that the effect is wholly attributable to the taxation. However, from knowing the usual effectiveness of public awareness campaigns versus what happened in Australia, we are pretty convinced indirectly that this is mainly an effect of the increased taxation. Okay, so what would the public health benefit be then if we reduced the alcohol content of beer, just of beer, based on what we know? Well, basically, alcohol is costing globally around 3 million deaths. What is the major driver of those deaths are two things. A, the overall level of how much alcohol is consumed in terms of pure alcohol. This is, for example, very important for all kinds of cancer. And B, the level of blood alcohol concentration, i.e. the heavy drinking occasions, which cause people to basically do things they wouldn't do otherwise without that much alcohol in their body. Those would be trying to fix their lamp at home on a ladder after the fourth beer and falling down. Any kind of injury, even suicide or violence, is linked to higher concentrations of alcohol. With reducing the amount of alcohol in each drink, we would reduce both the overall level of alcohol consumed and the level of blood alcohol concentration at any given moment. What has to happen, however, is that people actually have take their usual amount of alcohol, but with drinks which have less alcoholic strength. And we believe this is possible. Just returning to taxation briefly before we, we wrap up the podcast, based on the different taxation models for alcohol that exist around the world, different countries adopting different systems. I know I was once in an airport in Norway and a beer cost me £10. <laughs> I wasn't going to drink many of those. I thought that was very effective. But also, seriously, uh, here in the UK, that we, ha we have a public health um, debate about minimum pricing for alcohol to prevent the cheap availability of alcohol in supermarkets, etc. There are different models, different examples of, of the taxation systems. Which ones do we think work the best? That depends very much on the country and on the environment. For a country like the UK, where there had been a clear unwillingness of politicians to increase regular taxation, it is probably best and most acceptable to both the politicians and to the public to do a minimum price policy. This would also reduce binge drinking. It would go especially for binge drinkers of lower socioeconomic strata. And this is one of the concerns we have about alcohol intoxication. So basically, this is something which should be considered in countries like that. In other countries, it will depend very much on what is acceptable to politicians. As you said, if we would tax any alcohol, any drink about 10 pounds, we would reduce drinking uh, drastically around the world. 
There would be some more unrecorded consumption, i.e. illegally produced alcohol, but that would never, never compensate for the gains. However, nobody is discussing such drastic uh, conclusions. So we in order to fulfill public health needs, have to discuss with governments on all of those possibilities. And it may well be that there will be some governments, like the governments responsible for the Northern Territories in the, in, in, in Australia, which would consider this. Other governments would consider minimum pricing. Uh, right now, I think there are parliamentarian debates in four or five countries. Still other governments, uh, I admit fewer of them, may discuss a whole increase of taxation by 10 or 20 percent, which surely also would have effects. So it's not only about the effects of our measures, it's also about acceptability of both the public and the politicians of such a measure. And finally, particularly relevant to uh, the listeners of this podcast and the new readers of, of our new journal, The Lancet, Gastroenterology and Hepatology. What about the effect of harm of alcohol consumption on gastric disease and hepatic disease. It's worth emphasizing that too, isn't it? Absolutely. Alcohol is a little bit different than tobacco where everybody, if you go out in the street and you say, what are the main effects of tobacco, would rattle off the lung cancer and the heart disease and then come up with some other cancers. For alcohol, we have more than 230 different ICD-3 categories, which these are basically disease categories. So it looks like alcohol is impacting on a lot in our system. However, if you look into the real serious damage, if you look into uh, mortality, the hepatic diseases, liver cirrhosis, clearly stand out. They stand out for two reasons. A, they're relatively frequent, and B, they're in our countries, which means Europe and North America, constituting about 70 and more percent of the cause for all of the liver cirrhosis. So overall, the impact of alcohol on the gastrointestinal system is very pronounced. And when we achieve a reduction of drinking alcohol, we will automatically, and we just shown it in 52 countries for the WHO European region over the last 25 years, whenever there was a reduction of alcohol drinking, there was a reduction on gastrointestinal mortality. Indeed, important clinical point to, to 